your Bibles to Genesis chapter 9. We'll be concluding chapter 9. Chapter 9, verses 18 through 29. <clears throat> Genesis chapter 9, 18 through 29. The sons of Noah who went forth from the ark were Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Ham was the father of Canaan. These three were the sons of Noah, and from these the people of the whole earth were dispersed. Noah began to be a man of the soil, and he planted a vineyard. He drank of the wine and became drunk and lay uncovered in his tent. And Ham, the father of Canaan, saw the nakedness of his father and told his two brothers outside. Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backward, and covered the nakedness of their father. Their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. When Noah awoke from his wine and knew what his youngest son had done to him, he said, Cursed be Canaan, A servant of servants shall he be to his brothers. He also said, Blessed be the Lord, the God of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. May God enlarge Japheth, and let him dwell in the tents of Shem, and let Canaan be his servant. After the flood, Noah lived 350 years. All the days of Noah were 950 years, and he died. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Let us pray for God's blessing upon his word. Lord God, we thank you for delivering your will to man, even from earliest times, that you have preserved a people by your grace. We pray that you would strengthen us and teach us through your word today, that you would shed light upon us that we might see, that we might know and be strengthened and comforted and built up unto holiness. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. This uh, section of Scripture, this passage, concludes a section of Genesis. Genesis, as I've said, is divided up by the phrase, these are the generations of, um, and insert different names. At the beginning of chapter 10, we'll have, these are the generations of the sons of Noah. Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Uh, So this chapter, this portion of chapter 9, concludes these are the generations of Noah. In fact, uh, the conclusion of this passage, verses 28 and 29, conclude the genealogy that we find in chapter 5. That genealogy had ended with, and after Noah was 500 years old, he had three sons, you know, and then it mentions in the flood that he was 600 years old, when the flood happens, and then here it picks up that accounts that he lived 350 years more, then altogether it was 950 years that he lived, and he died. And so it concludes this portion of uh, Genesis. And it is a, an interesting way for it to conclude. Verses 18 through 19 provide the context. It has a very uh, structured way where you have an introduction, you have a conclusion. Introduction mentioned how they got off the ark, 
And Noah had three sons, and from these three sons, all the people of the whole earth came. Um, and so, it doesn't seem like Noah had any other children, and no one else survived the flood. Uh, but from these three sons are going to come uh, all of us. And it also notes that Ham was the father of Canaan. That's going to be an important point that, to understand uh, where this story goes. Uh, in fact, that's mentioned not only in verse 18, but it's also mentioned in verse 22. Now, Ham is connected with Canaan. Ham, Ham is the father of Canaan, which also indicates that some time had probably passed. I mean, they, the, the sons were already almost 100 years old when the flood came. And now Canaan, who is the fourth son, the youngest son of Ham, uh, was already born. So, and there was enough time to plant a vineyard and to harvest grapes and to make wine. Uh, So, this is not right off the ark, but after a little time, this event takes place. Now, this passage describes how Noah disgraced himself by getting drunk, and how this proved a test for his sons. How would his sons respond to Noah? The whole household had been delivered by God through Noah, who had overseen the construction of that ark according to all that God had told him. But now one of his sons begins to fall away by dishonoring his father. Nevertheless, despite the presence of sin, Noah's prophecy at the end here affirms God's intention to bless the nations through the promised offspring, which we find here is now not only through Noah, but through Shem in particular. In this account, then, we have what I'll call the shame of Noah, what Noah did, then the response of his sons, and then the blessings and curses or the prophecy of Noah in response to what they did. First, then, the shame of Noah, particularly described in verses 20 and 21. First point is that it was good that Noah worked the ground, planted a vineyard, and drank of the wine. So far, so good. Man was made to work the ground. Uh, God had given him the, the plants to eat. As Psalm 104 says in verses 14 through 15, speaking to God, you cause the grass to grow for the livestock and plants for man to cultivate, that he might bring forth fruit from the earth and wine to gladden the heart of man, oil to make his face shine, and bread to strengthen man's heart. God has given these good things for man to bring forth. He put the potential in the plants. Uh, he, he gives the fertility to the soil. Uh, he has designed man to be able to do these things so that even what man has made, we can see as gifts of God. And he's given it for our good, to make us happy, to make, us, uh, to make our face shine, to strengthen you, to strengthen your heart, to give you courage, to give you uh, encouragement. God is given good gifts, and Noah begins to, uh, to receive those. But it is not good, and this is the second point, sub-point, it's not good that he drank excessively and became drunk. Um, wine is listed as a gift of God, But it is also, Scripture also contains a number of warnings of drinking excessively, of getting drunk. Proverbs 20, verse 1 
says, Wine is a mocker, strong drink a brawler, and whoever is led astray by it is not wise. Has a more extended portion in Proverbs 23, describing of the misery that uh, excessive drinking of wine brings, and the contention that it brings, the evils that it brings. In some places, it's simply just forbidden, drunkenness. Uh, Ephesians 5.18, and do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery. And so this was obviously something that was bad, something that Noah should not have done. Noah, who is a blameless man, righteous in his generation, I mean, he did live a lot longer than we're going to have to live. Uh, And so we could think, well, it's maybe a little, we can be a little light on him, at least compared to ourselves. But it's all the more uh, that this prophet of God, this leader of all humanity on earth at the time, after accomplishing all of these things, that he succumbs uh, to drunkenness. And um, the third point here is this drunkenness left him in a humiliating state without control. Uh, This description is not supposed to give you reason to think, well, if Noah got drunk, then it therefore must not have been such a bad thing. Rather, it is to give us uh, cause to all the more heed uh, the danger that this is a disgraceful and humiliating thing. Literally, it says Noah uncovered himself. He lay uncovered. The idea there is he himself uncovered himself, perhaps became overheated from the wine, um, but regardless, ended up without his clothes and lay in his tent. At least he was in his tent. But he is selfless. He is uh, uh, passed out or at least not very uh, in control of himself, laying in his tent. And it demonstrates the evil of drunkenness. It disarms a person. It puts a person to shame. I don't think this is a good practice, but uh, I've been told the Spartans taught their children not to get drunk by getting their slaves drunk and watching how foolish they would act to prevent them from doing so. I don't think that's a good practice, but it is here, at least by reading this account, you can get the same point. Wine is given to give strength and gladness, but not to make a person weak and foolish. It is abused when it becomes uh, counterproductive of the reasons for its gift. It was given to give strength and gladness, but it is abused when it leads to weakness and foolishness. And so, the fourth sub-point here is that this serves as a warning. Beware, for if Noah was disgraced by such a sin, you are not above that danger. Someone who had habits cultivated by centuries of living amid a culture that was dark and was pressuring him to do what is wrong and yet him standing fast for what is right. Now they're all gone. He's seen the great works of God and yet gives in and falls prey to this sin. So look out. Never let your guard down against sin. Even if the temptations seem to be past, we bring them with us all too often. This also warns you against trusting in your own righteousness, reminding you that even the most blameless of saints do not stand before God upon a perfect record, but upon God's grace. And so, how much more do we have reason to be humble? 
before him. <clears throat> so we find Noah drunk, uncovered in his tent. Well, what happens next? How do his sons respond? The main point of the story is what Noah's sons do in response to their father's actions. Ham dishonors his father by looking at his father's nakedness and talking about it to his brothers. Shem and Japheth, they honor their father by going through great lengths to not look at their father's nakedness and covering it up. Big contrast, right? Totally different responses from Ham and Shem and Japheth on the other side. Now, a few people, very few people, but a few people have suggested that perhaps Ham did more than look and talk uh, because Leviticus uses the phrase uncover someone's nakedness to refer to uh, prohibited sexual relations. Uh, But I think that is not to the point. Genesis does not say that Ham uncovered his father's nakedness, doesn't use that phrase. Noah uncovered himself due to the effects of sin, uh, sorry, of wine. And Ham looked at that nakedness and talked about it. Just as literally not looking at Noah's drunken nakedness and covering it was the right course of action and was the solution, and those are meant very literally in straightforward manner. So literally looking at Noah's nakedness and talking about it was the fault. And there's no reason in the text to go beyond a straightforward understanding of the text. And from the context, we can imagine, too, that when Ham talked about it, that uh, he uh, was not talking about it in a very good way, but uh, spreading the shame of his father. Check out what our father has done. Uh, he is laying there naked in the tent, drunk, passed out from wine. Rather than going to Leviticus, first of all, look to the immediate context, how these terms are used here, but also think back to Genesis 2 and 3. Genesis has already talked about nakedness. Originally, Adam and Eve were naked and not ashamed, but then once sin occurred, they were ashamed. They hid. They sought to cover themselves. God had to cover them. Clothing is important. Uh, it's, uh, and this uh, problem of shame and nakedness was literal, a matter of being clothed or not. After the fall, clothes are required to cover nakedness, since man no longer has that natural glory and dignity that they once had. God clothed Adam and Eve, demonstrating that spiritually speaking, God clothes and adorns his people by covering the disgrace of their sin and making them partakers in Christ's righteousness and glory. The covering of nakedness is also important in the instruction to the priests in Exodus. Uh, Twice it's mentioned to prevent their nakedness from being exposed, God prohibited them going up by steps to an altar. And he also gave instructions for special garments to cover them from hip to thigh uh, to make sure that their naked flesh was not exposed. The prophets often used the seeing of nakedness as a metaphor for being humiliated. In fact, Habakkuk, too, uses the use of wine as well. To paraphrase it, it says that as Babylon had made its neighbors drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness, i.e., in other words, Babylon had humiliated other nations, so Babylon would have its fill of shame instead of glory 
and it would be made to drink and show its uncircumcision, i.e., be humiliated. And so that's the, the significance here of Ham looking at his father's nakedness and talking about it to his brothers. He looked, he talked, he saw his father in a humiliating, drunken stupor, uncovered in his tent, and rather than averting his gaze and quickly covering him up and keeping quiet, he does the opposite. He looks. It's not a casual glance. The word is more like a gaze, and he spreads the report of their father's shame. And this, despite the fact that Noah was a prophet who had led them through the flood, not only had given them life as their father. Now, Shem and Japheth did what Ham should have done. They took a garment and they covered their father with the garment. And they were very careful not to look at their father's nakedness. In fact, there's a lot more words used to describe this act than any other act in the, in the text. You know, most of this is pretty terse. He drank of the wine, became drunk, lay uncovered, he saw, he told. But then, verse 23, Then Shem and Japheth took a garment, laid it on both their shoulders, and walked backwards and covered the nakedness of their father, and their faces were turned backwards, and they did not see their father's nakedness. It sounds very awkward, but that's kind of the point. They went through great lengths to, to guard the honor of their father, even though what he had done was disgraceful. And so this passage teaches us, I think, two lessons at least. First, it teaches a lesson about nakedness and shame and covering. Unless we're talking about a husband and wife in private, it's not good to look at other people's nakedness. That's true even when there's nothing sexual about the exposure. Uh, You can think of perhaps a few circumstances where the exposure might be embarrassing but unavoidable, like changing diapers or medical occasions or giving birth. Uh, But even then, as it usually is, privacy is to be maximized you know, usually shown as much as possible. But generally speaking, it's wrong to look at another's nakedness. It's wrong to humiliate other people in that way. Some parts of the body are meant to be private, at least in this post-fall world. We require clothes not only for warmth and protection, uh, but also for dignity. And so if another person is exposed, look away. If the situation allows, provide them with a garment with covering. Even if others are humiliating themselves, avert your gaze from their nakedness. Likewise, if you expect others to do that for you, do it for yourself. It's wrong to humiliate yourself by exposing yourself. God calls us to be modest, not shameless. Seek to preserve both your own and your neighbor's dignity. Now, some people today think that publicly exposing nakedness is good for promoting body positivity. Uh, But that's not a biblical way of thinking. The body is good, and it is honored when we clothe it with respectable apparel and cover what Paul calls our unpresentable parts. This is also, though, and perhaps even more so, a lesson about the honor of parents, something that even before the giving of the law, they knew was their duty. And as Jesus said in Matthew 15, God commanded... Honor your father and your mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. Or as Proverbs 30 says, quite vividly, 
the eye that mocks a father and scorns to obey a mother will be picked out by the ravens of the valley and eaten by the vultures. You must honor your father and your mother. That remains a command for you in childhood and in adulthood, even if you're 100 years old, like Ham and Shem and Japheth. You ought to honor your father and your mother to remain a staff of support for your parents in their old age. Ham exemplifies the dishonor of father, and it's all the worse because his father was a prophet and a deliverer. Shem and Japheth exemplify honor as they refuse to humiliate their father, despite his disgrace, and cover him up. They looked out for him when he was incapable of looking out for himself. They showed him honor even when he had acted disgracefully. If you ought to show honor to parents even when they act disgracefully, how much more when they do well? God calls his people to honor parents and other superiors by showing reverence in heart and word and behavior, (coughs) heeding their instructions, their counsels, their corrections, imitating their virtues and graces, bearing with their infirmities, covering them with love. So bear with their faults. Speak respectfully of their errors. One way to show honor is to look out for their reputation, to watch their back, to work to maintain that reputation. It's in your own interest to do so. You can still respectfully reprove them. Prophet Nathan was able to come to King David. Uh, John the Baptist was able to come to King Herod. Uh, But they did so in a straightforward, respectful manner. Nor does this command prevent someone from reporting the crimes of his superiors. This principle perhaps could be abused, but it does require you to be patient and respectful with them, to not revile or lash out at them, to show honor to them whether or not they are acting honorably for the sake of the office that God has given them. With grateful reverence for them, don't broadcast their faults more than is useful or needful. There was no good reason for him to spread the news of his father's shameful condition. So when your parents stumble, help them back up. Don't kick them when they're down. Don't take satisfaction at exposing their faults, their inconsistencies, their sins to others. Pride and bitterness leads many people today to curse their fathers, to take satisfaction in tearing them down. But God calls you to have an attitude of gratitude, of reverence and humility, Perhaps this is especially a good message this time of year, where often we gather with family. And that can be a joyful thing, and it can be a time with tension as well. But you did not give yourself life. You did not come into a world of your own making. And you don't stand alone by yourself this day either. So heed God's command and honor your father and your mother. The last part of this passage culminates with the curse and blessing of Noah. This is the only time Noah is quoted in the Bible. The only words that are quoted in the text from him. And it concludes his part in the story. <clears throat> when Noah learned what had happened, he responded with prophetic curses and blessings. Again, this is not Joe Schmo. This is a guy whom God had revealed his will. This is a prophet. And so in verses... 24 through 27, 
he pronounces blessings and curses that will be of relevance for hundreds and hundreds and thousands of years to come. And curses and blessings, a major theme in Genesis, just as it would later be with Abraham. So those who blessed Noah would be blessed, but those who dishonored Noah would be cursed. First, there is Canaan, the son of Ham, who is cursed with servitude. Now notice it's Canaan in particular, not all of Ham's descendants uh, that is cursed. Um, I've never read it explicitly, but I have been told that some have justified the enslavement of Africans because of their descent from Ham, but there's no basis for that interpretation here in the Bible. It is Canaan in particular that is mentioned. Now, that could raise the question, why is Canaan cursed? Why not Ham? I think it's because just as Noah was dishonored by his son, so Ham would be dishonored by the ways and the fate of his son. The similarity is even more striking because it seems that Ham was the youngest son of Noah, according to verse 24, and Canaan is the youngest son of Ham, according to the next chapter. And perhaps Noah also saw or foresaw a similarity of character as well. At least we know that over time the Canaanites would become infamous for their depravity. It is said three times in this text that Canaan would become a servant to his brothers. Uh, To his brothers here, referring really to his uncles, to uh, Shem and Japheth. This foretells, at least, and probably preeminently, the divinely authorized conquest of Canaan under Joshua, as well as by David and Solomon, who uh, not only killed Canaanites, but also subdued them, made them hew wood and draw water and to serve It is also possibly referring to the fate of Sodom and Gomorrah within the book of Genesis. Those were Canaanite cities. They were subject to the four kings who were Shemite and possibly Jephite as well. Then Lot was there and seemed to rise in preeminence as a judge among them. And then, of course, they were wiped out. Perhaps it also foretells of conquests by the sons of Japheth, like Alexander the Great and the Romans, who wiped out the Canaanites of Tyre and Carthage. But like I said, I think the main, uh, the main thing in mind would be quite of relevance to the original audience of Genesis, as the Israelites under Moses were headed to Canaan, to know that this had been spoken long ago, that they would inherit this land. <clears throat> Shem is blessed by the Lord. More precisely, the Lord is blessed as the God of Shem. Noah praises God, and he delighted in the evidence of God's grace in his son Shem, and praised the Lord, Jehovah, as the God of Shem. Now, Shem is the ancestor of the Israelites, the ancestor of Jesus himself. And like Abraham, his descendant, the Lord is his God. He is the God of Abraham. He is also the God of Shem. Shem is also blessed with a promise of future preeminence over Canaan, as he would later dispossess them by God's command in God's timing. Japheth is also blessed, and he is blessed through Shem. First, it says God would enlarge Japheth, which is a play on his name, what his name means. Uh, He would make him many peoples, and indeed the peoples of Japheth would spread throughout the world, throughout Asia and Europe. We'll get to that next chapter. 
but he would be blessed by dwelling in the tents of Shem, since the Lord is the God of Shem. There would be blessing in the tents of Shem. That is, Japheth would be blessed by being united to Israel and to his Messiah. Even though his descendants, the descendants of Japheth, would fall away into idolatry over time, they would be brought back to God by being united to Israel by faith. And this prophecy was primarily fulfilled as the Gentiles were grafted into Israel through faith in Christ, as it's described in Romans 11, especially in the New Covenant. Although one time we were separated from Christ and alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, now in Christ we are fellow citizens with the saints, ones who are already there, and members of the household of God. Both Shem and Japheth are now dwelling in the tents of Shem as one people through faith in Christ. All those who have faith in Christ are made brothers and sisters, are made members of one household, of course, with obligations to receive everyone else in the household, to welcome one another in Christ. They may be cut off due to unbelief, but they may be grafted on through faith in Christ. Now, this is also true of Ham's other descendants, you know, besides Canaan. They're not mentioned, uh, but we find prophecies in Isaiah and 18 and 19, where Ethiopia and Egypt and other descendants of Ham are said to, are going to come to the Lord as well. Even the Canaanites who turned to the Lord like Rahab were blessed in the tents of Shem. Through Christ, all the nations of the earth are being blessed and grafted into the people of God. And so just like other places in Genesis, sin and curse is not the whole story. God responds not only with judgment, but also with the hope of salvation through the promised offspring. So in conclusion... Beware the snare of drunkenness. Preserve your own and your neighbor's dignity. Honor your father and your mother. And remember that despite the sin of man, despite the fact that we come not as those who have kept these commandments perfectly, but that God will exercise his saving power among the nations. So dwell together in the tents of Shem, bearing with one another, helping one another, restoring one another, exercising the love that covers a multitude of sins. Let us pray. Dear Father, we thank you for your grace and mercy in having an eye to mankind whom you have created despite their sin and dishonor of you, our Heavenly Father, and departing and rebelling against you, that you have received us again by your grace through the Lord Jesus Christ. We praise you and bless you as our God. We pray that you would continue to bring the nations in, into the tents of Shem, into your church, the church of Jesus Christ, that they might be blessed with us. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.